When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, listeners. I just wanted to let you know that I have uploaded Premium Series 29 Part 4 to the Premium Subscription. And that includes lots of listen and repeat pronunciation drills. So I've taken target language from part three of Premium Series 29. And uh, there are lots of pronunciation drills. So sentences, including the target language. And the idea is that you listen and try to repeat exactly the way I'm saying those sentences. And we focus on sentence stress, word stress, connected speech and weak forms as well. So if you ever want to listen to me say some sentences and then repeat after me and work on your pronunciation, you can do that with premium episodes. So check out Premium Series 29 Part 4. It's available to all the premium subscribers now. And if you would like to sign up to Luke's English Podcast Premium to access all of those episodes, then just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info. Hello, listeners. This is a podcast for learners of English as a foreign language or learners of English as a second language. And if you are a learner of English, hello. Thank you for choosing to listen to my podcast. If you're a regular listener, if you're a a Lepster, as you're known, then hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Are you ready for some English listening practice? I hope so. But yes, this is a podcast for English language learners. And for that reason, before we get to the actual interview, I will do an introduction to explain certain things. So why am I why am I saying this bit? Well, I'm aware that I might be speaking to some people who don't normally listen to this podcast in this episode because I've got, you know, a guest in this episode that uh, might attract some other listeners and uh, you know, that might include Applejack's fans or perhaps some of Megan's friends and family. Hello, if that is the case. Hello. Uh, it's me. It's Luke. Hello. I I might know you. I hope you're doing all right. Um, I probably haven't seen you for a long time. Long time no see. Anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that there is a fairly long introduction to this before we actually listen to Megan speaking. And because my listeners are generally people learning English around the world, sometimes I have to explain certain things in advance in order to help them. You know, that's the whole point. They're learning English. And that includes things like cultural references, bits of UK general knowledge, and also specific vocabulary. And that's what I am doing in the introduction to this. So if that's not for you, and you'd rather just skip straight to Megan, then you can skip forwards to about 24 minutes in. Okay, for the usual listeners, hello to all of you, wherever you are on planet Earth at this moment. Hello to all my Lepsters. So for for all the Lepsters, I suggest that you keep on listening and you, you do listen to the introduction because I'm going to explain some things that I think that you need to know and that will help you get the most out of the episode. All right. So if you want to skip straight to Megan, go to about 24 minutes in or maybe 25 minutes in. Otherwise, just keep listening. Okay. Right. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Okay. 
Okay, so let me tell you a few things about the episode that you're going to hear. Um, I'm going to try and keep this introduction as short as possible, but there are some things that I feel I need to tell you just to give you enough context and, you know, vocabulary and bits of general knowledge for you to properly understand this conversation, or at least to help you to do that. So in this episode, you're going to listen to me in conversation with Megan Brady, who was a pop star in the 1960s. Yes, a proper pop star. She was in a band which had a top 10 single. She was on the radio. She appeared on a lot of the music TV shows in the UK. She met loads of other pop stars of the moment, including the Beatles. Yes, she met the Beatles. And in fact, John Lennon and Paul McCartney gave her band a song which they recorded. That was their second single, actually. The band were featured in the music magazines, and no doubt many teenagers all over the country had Megan's photo on their bedroom walls. Yeah, proper pop star stuff. So this is the story of Megan's career in music in the 1960s. Now, you might be thinking, which band was Megan in? Well, the band was called the Apple Jacks. You might not have heard of them. They're not one of the big bands that we now think of when we look back at the 1960s, and they didn't really reach fame on an international level, but they were certainly part of the scene and were well-known at the time. My mum was a fan of the Applejacks, for example. Of course, we know about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and other groups, but there was a whole wave of other groups from all over the UK who were playing a new form of music, and so many young people were really into it, and that includes the Applejacks who were from the Birmingham area. My guest is Megan Brady, as I've said, although she was known as Megan Davies in those days. And Megan was the bass player, the bass guitarist in the band. And at that time, it was quite uncommon to have a female musician in a group. We're talking about the early to mid-1960s. There were female singers, but you hardly ever saw girls actually playing instruments in bands. And so that was one of the unique things about the Applejacks. So yes, you're going to hear Megan talking about all of this, as well as other details, like her other career as a clinical physiologist in neurophysiology in the National Health Service. So that's the other work that she's been doing over the years. And being a clinical physiologist uh, in neurophysiology, basically involves studying people's brain waves, okay? And also we talk about just stuff about playing the bass guitar and how she's been working on her technique and things like that. Um, so I know Megan because I'm mates with one of her sons, Jake. I'm friends with one of her sons, Jake, or Jacob as she calls him. I met Jake at Sixth Form College when I was about 16 and we played music together in bands over the years. And I was always really impressed by the fact that Jake's parents were both professional musicians, his mum and his dad as well, in fact, played music professionally. And I was impressed by that because I was so into music from the 60s and 70s at that time, and I still am, including a lot of the artists that Jake's mum and dad had worked with or brushed shoulders with over the years. For example, I was really into Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I'm assuming that most of you know who Jimi Hendrix is. There will be some people out there who are like, Jimi what? Jimi who? Jimi Hendrix. Um, I mean, Google it. (laughs) It's the best I can say. Uh, A guitar hero. Um, One of the, you know, most guitarists agree that he's one of the greatest guitarists ever. 
Anyway, I was really into Jimi Hendrix when I was 16 or 17, and I remember talking to Jake about Hendrix, and he told me that they actually had Jimi Hendrix's wah-wah pedal at their home somewhere. So a wah-wah pedal is just a kind of guitar pedal, something you plug your guitar into in order to change the sound. So yeah, it's like, yeah, um, uh, hey, you like Jimi Hendrix? Check this out. We've got Jimi Hendrix's wah-wah pedal at home. Come over, I'll show it to you. And I was like, what? So I don't think Jake was bragging about that. I think he thought it was cool too. And he just wanted to share it with me. And I believed him. So that was amazing. Also, I went to Jake's house one day and I was hanging out in his bedroom, listening to some of his music. And his mum's bass guitar was sitting there, a nice Fender jazz bass. And I picked it up and played it a little bit. And Jake said to me, oh yeah, Jimi Hendrix played that bass once. And I couldn't believe it. Like Jimi Hendrix played the same bass that was actually in my hands. And it turned out that Jake's mum knew Hendrix a bit back in the old days. And he once had a little go on her bass guitar. And the, the very same one that was in Jake's bedroom that time. So yeah, there you go. Wow, that's my claim to fame, listeners. I have played the same guitar as Jimi Hendrix. Now, this is all well and good. I mean, I don't mean to like drop names. I'm impressed by that. But I mean, obviously, Jimi Hendrix, just a normal person like everyone else. Kind of normal? Not really. Anyway, eventually I learned more and my parents told me more about Megan and that she'd played bass in the Applejacks in the 60s and they were one of the popular groups of the time. And so anyway, that's how I, that's how I know Megan. I'm friends with her son. And now I've finally taken the initiative to interview her on this podcast. And Megan is lovely and she was happy to do this, which I really appreciate. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation and just, you know, enjoy finding out about a period of British history and just, you know, I hope you find it interesting, the story of getting into a pop band and then having some measure of success. It's not every day that you get first-hand accounts of this kind of thing. So I feel glad that I've spoken to Megan and, you know, I feel thankful that she was willing to share her experiences with us on this podcast. Now, before we start, I just need to explain a few words that you will hear, but that you might not know. A few little reference points just to help you um, as you listen to this conversation, okay? Because, you know, if you don't have all the general knowledge, if you don't know everything about the culture of the period or certain things in music or like guitar stuff, then you might get a bit lost. So I'm just going to teach you a few little things, just explain a few little things just to help you. So the first thing is the scouts. Okay, the scouts. So the scouts um, is a worldwide movement for young people. It used to be just boys, but these days it's for boys and girls, I think. And it was founded as the Boy Scouts in England in 1908 by Lord Baden-Powell with the aim of developing character and responsibility. Now, my brother and I used to be scouts, and my dad also was in the scouts when he was a child, a young person. So basically, the scouts is kind of like a youth club, and it's something that young people do probably on a weekly basis. So when I was younger, my brother and I would go to scouts every week, and at scouts, you would learn basic skills, and they would kind of encourage you to develop certain kinds of skills, like practical skills. Um, there was an emphasis on being helpful in the community. And the sorts of skills you would learn were, you know, basic practical things like, uh, especially stuff related to being outdoors, 
like map reading, tying knots, how to start a fire. Uh, I mean, the sort of useful fires that you would use when camping, not just how to burn stuff. I mean, anyone knows how to do that. But, you know, how to start a fire when you're outdoors and other things. And you would learn skills and what, and you would, you'd earn badges, which you, which would be attached to your, to your, uh, shirt. You wore a kind of scout's uniform. So that's the scouts, a kind of club that involved activities and adventurous stuff. And it was good fun. And, the point is about the Scouts is that you'll hear Megan mention the Scouts. She was associated with the Scouts. She was in the Scouts. She was a, a Cub Scout leader or a Cub Scout mistress, which is someone who organises Cub Scout activities or monitors groups of Cub Scouts. The Cub Scouts were the, like the younger kids, probably between the age of about 8 and 10 or 8 and 11. Uh, that's the Cub Scouts. So the younger ones... And so Megan was a, a Cub Scout mistress and she would sort of look after groups of Cub Scouts. Okay. So she was in the Scouts. And in fact, the other members of the Applejacks were also in the Scouts. And that's how they met each other. In fact, they, they met because the group of Scouts that she was part of put on a gang show. So a gang show is basically a performance by a group of Scouts or Cubs. Okay. Probably done at the end of the year, maybe at Christmas or something. So the gang show, yeah, done by um, groups of scouts. And it would involve like musical performances or maybe putting on some kind of theatrical performance. And members of the community would come and see the gang show, the parents of the scouts, like a big performance by all the scouts. That's a gang show. Okay, I've mentioned cub mistress, uh, scout hut. Scout hut is where the scouts meet. And it could be just a any kind of appropriate large space. Sometimes scout huts are actually, you know, built to be scout huts, like specifically, but otherwise scouts could meet in community centres or church halls or sports halls. Uh, but generally a place where scouts meet would be a scout hut. Okay, moving on. We've got the word skiffle. So skiffle is actually a really important musical movement from the late 50s and probably the early 60s in the UK. And before rock and roll music, which was generally played on electric instruments, electric guitars. Skiffle was the thing that young people were really into. It was a hugely popular musical movement and loads of young people got into skiffle, meaning little groups, little bands playing skiffle music. So skiffle music was pretty much a mixture of like folk music and country music and maybe traditional jazz music. Simple songs played on the guitar um, and it was a kind of a simple um, grassroots kind of music. And it would involve guitars. So kids who had even like basic guitars, uh, acoustic guitars, they would play singing, acoustic guitars, maybe a banjo or a ukulele in there or something like that. So anyway, a skiffle group, a very, very basic early um, musical craze before the electric guitar craze came in and before the Beatles and stuff and any any group from the 60s in fact any sort of guitarist or famous guitarist who became famous in the 60s or even early 70s almost all of them started by playing skiffle okay so that's skiffle and skiffle numbers would be skiffle songs okay uh next is the the shadows so the shadows is worth mentioning because the shadows were a really influential group and maybe the most popular uh, group in the country before the Beatles properly arrived on the scene. And the Shadows played electric instruments. So this was like 
so the, for many people, the first introduction to electric guitars, like seeing the Shadows perform and listening to their records. And the, the lead guitarist of the Shadows was called Hank Marvin. He played a red Fender Stratocaster, which was significant because for many people, this was the first time they'd seen a Fender Stratocaster, which was a beautiful electric guitar. Every, you know, Fender Stratocasters are everywhere now. Everyone's got, I've got one. But in those days, they were very rare and exotic things. And so the Shadows played instrumental guitar music. They sometimes performed with a singer called Cliff Richard, who was also a really big star of the time before the Beatles arrived. He was a kind of like the English Elvis sort of thing. But um, the Shadows are really known for uh, instrumental guitar uh, songs, really popular. The first electric guitar band that most people got into, Hank Marvin, was the first English guitar hero. So there you go. That's the Shadows. Okay, another thing is a cruise, a cruise ship. So um, a cruise ship is a big luxury uh, boat, big luxury ship that takes passengers to different holiday destinations. And if you go on a cruise, it would mean instead of like going to a specific location for your holiday, like going to Spain or, you know, somewhere even more exotic, like going to the Caribbean and just staying in one place, you could go on a cruise ship. I think you probably know they're still very, very popular. And cruise ships are these big ships that take passengers to different holiday destinations. And the cruise ships are um, well equipped with um, uh, lots of entertainment. They have swimming pools, they have sports facilities, they have restaurants, bars, theatres, casinos, cinemas, and um, facilities for live music. So like dance halls. And in the 60s, certainly the sort of mid to late 60s, cruise ships run by companies like Cunard Cruises. Cunard Cruises were, that was the big company, the big British company that did um, cruises from the UK. They would employ bands to perform rock and roll music or pop music to the passengers. And the Applejacks were one of the groups that were um, employed by um, cruise ships. And they performed on the Queen Mary and the QE2. And the Queen, these, both of these ships, the Queen Mary and the QE2, or the Queen Elizabeth II, are really sort of well-known flagship British ocean liners. Okay? All right. Next thing is the, is the TV show, Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops was a sort of TV institution. And uh, basically, Top of the Pops was a TV show where you could watch your favourite musicians performing on TV. And they would choose the top 10 singles, the top 10 songs of that week. And they would feature those songs often with live performances or at least kind of partially live performances in the studio. So it was a chance for the nation to sit down and watch their favourite pop stars on TV every week. Top of the pops. Another thing is Great Ormond Street Hospital. Okay, Great Ormond Street is a famous hospital in London specialising in paediatric care. Paediatric care means medical care for children. This is where Megan has worked since the late 1990s at Great Ormond Street. So we're nearly done here. I just feel like I need to mention some bass guitar stuff. And just a heads up for you, things will get a little bit geeky and specific sometimes in this conversation as we talk about playing the bass guitar, different types of bass guitar and Megan's bass playing technique. You know, I know that this stuff about bass guitar playing and different bass guitars, it's a little bit specific and many of you, that's not your area of interest. 
But I didn't really want to cut those parts out of the conversation because I personally find those things really interesting. Megan was enthusiastic about them. And so who's to say that you won't find them interesting too? So, you know, I hope that you enjoy listening to us talking about bass guitar stuff. I should just use this as a chance to teach you some things about a bass guitar. So the bass guitar is the one that plays the low notes, the bass notes. Doom, 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 right? That's your bass guitar. It's like, it looks pretty much like a normal electric guitar. It's just bigger. And, and it's got four strings on it. And the strings are thicker, making those deep notes. Okay, here are some words for the parts of the guitar. At the very top, you've got the head of the guitar. And that's where the name of the guitar is printed, like, you know, Fender Jazz Bass. Fender is one of the companies, one of the most famous companies that makes guitars. Uh, There's Fender and Gibson. We're talking about Fender here. So there's the head of the guitar. There's the machine heads and tuning pegs. These are the things you use to control the tone or pitch of the strings. You can use them to tighten the strings or loosen the strings. So you'll see when guitarists tune their guitars, they're turning the tuning pegs. Okay, and that tightens the strings or loosens them, the machine heads and tuning pegs. Then you've got the neck of the guitar. That's the long section, the neck. And the neck is attached to the body of the guitar. And on the body, you will see like volume and tone controls, little dials that you can turn to, you know, raise and lower the volume and change the tone. And um, also you'll see pickups on the guitar. Pickups are the things that make the guitar electric. They pick up the vibrations of the metal strings and transform that into a sort of electrical signal. And then when you plug your guitar in to an amp, the pickups are the things that, you know, yeah, turn the strings vibrations into actual electric sound, which can then be amplified and stuff like that. So those are the pickups. And on bass guitars, often they are like little black plastic rectangles that are fitted to the body. And they sometimes have little metal dots on them and they kind of use electromagnets sort of thing. I don't really understand how they work, uh, but uh, they are very important for guitars and different types of pickups will generate slightly different sounds. And the position of the pickups also will will give a different sound. Okay, then there's the scratch plate, which is a kind of plastic plate which is put on the guitar to protect it from damage, uh, especially if you're using a pick. A pick is a plastic, a little plastic thing that you hold between your thumb and your forefinger, and guitarists will use the pick to strike the strings. Um, bass players sometimes use their fingers or sometimes use a pick. Okay, you need to put the pick somewhere if you're not using it. So, where do you put it? Megan uh, sticks her pick underneath the scratch plate she kind of like wedges it under the scratch plate and you'll hear her talk about this because we talk about her guitar and the way that it's got different bits of damage and scratches and bits where the paint has worn off and if you've ever seen an old electric guitar uh, one that's seen a lot of action you'll know what I mean that that some guitars develop a certain unique character in the way that they get worn away the paint gets worn away in some some spots and the wood gets exposed and that's those things sort of tell a story of how that guitar has been used over the years and Megan's Fender Jazz Bass is a great example of this. Finally then two types of Fender Bass guitar. You'll hear us talking about Fender Jazz Basses and Fender Precision Basses and for most people, most normal people, um, these two types of electric bass guitar look almost exactly the same. 
They're, they're almost identical, really, to the untrained eye. There are just certain little differences, and that's to do with the, the pickups, the types of pickup that they have, the position of those pickups, and certain other things like the shape of the neck of the guitar. On a jazz bass, the neck is a little bit slimmer, um, but that's more or less it. So anyway, in any case, if you, if you know anything about electric bass guitars, you'll know that Fender bass guitars are probably the most popular ones. And there are two types of people in the world, two types of Fender bass guitarists. There's Fender jazz people and Fender precision bass people. Although most of us would like to have both, but uh, that's not always possible because, you know, they can be quite expensive. Right. So without any further ado, let's listen to Megan Brady talking about playing the bass guitar and her story of being a pop star in the 1960s. And to lead us into this, I'm going to play a little sample of the Applejack's first and most successful single, which was called Tell Me When, in 1964. So here we go. Megan, hello. Hello. Nice to talk to you. Good to see you again, Luke. Good to see you too. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. I was just saying that actually I've always wanted to ask you all about your your life in music and you know the, you were always like my friend's mum, like the coolest mum of all of our friends. And the more the more we found out about things you'd done as a musician the sort of cooler and cooler you became so doing my podcast I've always wanted to uh you know there's lots of people I've always wanted to talk to and having a podcast kind of gives me an excuse to do it I probably should have just asked you in the past when when I was around at your house and things like that but um so thanks very much for doing this where shall we start? Well, it was a very, very long time ago, Luke. Yeah. I mean, we are talking 1960s, so yes, uh, a long, long time. Today, I'm at home in London, and it's looking a bit murky out there today. Is it? Yeah. And it's going to rain, apparently, for the next six days. So my situation is... I work currently at a place called Young Epilepsy in Surrey, and I am a clinical physiologist in neurophysiology, which basically, when people sort of quiz me on that, I say, well, I stick wires on children's heads and I record their brain activity. So that's the obvious way to describe it. I'm furloughed at the moment, which means I'm not allowed to get in touch with the establishment at all i have to stay at home and i'm due back on the 6th of april i think as far as that's concerned it was probably a money saving thing from young epilepsy because i'm quite expensive and they've saved my wages because the government have been paying them for the last two months so that's it i'm here in london and i'm confined i'm not really supposed to go out at all unless it's for 
exercise or to go to the shops. So, How have you actually been keeping yourself entertained during the lockdown? Now, that's an interesting question. Uh, on May the 17th last year, I discovered Scott's Space Lessons. <laughs> <laughs> I sound as if, I'm going to sound as if I'm doing an advert here because I, I, it's just taken over uh, my, my world. It's just so exciting. I've never really practiced very much. Uh, I just sort of pick up the bass and it just goes. So I've worked quite hard on trying to get my technique together and trying to read music and um, lots and lots of exercises. And this Scott Devine is a marvellous fellow who just is so enthusiastic, a great teacher. And he says that there's 27,000 bass players from all over the world. And now I don't know whether that means people who have enrolled and have, who've dropped off, but 27,000 bass players. That's amazing. In his programme. In his programme. And he does say that it's the best bass guitar. No, no, not not just bass guitar, but it's the best music programme in the world. And it probably is because it's absolutely wonderful. There's a seminar every Monday evening, uh, some bass player, usually from America, but some from Great Britain, they come on and they've got a, a an hour slot, and so there's that. But there's there's lot. Well, I I can't begin to tell you what's in the program because it's just it's just absolutely marvelous. There's lots of things, and you submit videos, and then uh, uh, every month he actually, if you've submitted something, he actually goes through it and he spends about twenty minutes or half an hour saying how you can improve yourself on the little bit that you've submitted, and it really is. Very good indeed. And there are people from all over the world, a lot of people from France, people from, well, absolutely every place, you know, Haiti, all sorts of funny little islands that you would never have imagined. Quite a few from Brazil have just come in lately. And it's just very, very good. End of advert. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, there's there's the plug there for Scott's Space Lessons. Well, uh, I know Scott Divine from YouTube, yeah, and he's he's amazing. But I've never I've never um, actually joined his uh, his program. But maybe I should because I try to play bass as well. But um, yeah, you got to put the the, the time in. Um, so uh, um, just on the subject of bass and and your technique and stuff what what is it that you've been working on is there something that you feel like you've progressed with um since you've been practicing with scott well there is something ongoing which is called the player's path and there are nine different levels and there are about six or eight tunes in each level and uh obviously when you join you probably start at player's path level one uh, and I've got to level five so far. And he plays it and you see the notes and you see the sort of the tab kind of. And um, you just play along with it. And you just have to get, you have to be able to play it three times perfectly with the right intonation and feel and with the best technique, obviously. And... Uh, you have to choose three of the six or eight pieces. And when you've got three of them up to standard and he keeps 
telling him that you mustn't cheat. <laughs> He's very good. He really is very good. Cheat in the sense of like, you know, changing the fingering. Before you really have passed, you know, you've got to do it perfectly. And you've got to do it perfectly three times in a row before you can move on to the next one. So I've been quite strict and I've got as far as the fifth one. I don't know how long I'll be on that before I move on. But of course, you do kind of choose tunes that are more to your to your own sort of genre and your, your own feel your own groove if you like that's a word that's used a lot these days mm-hmm. and so uh you know the heavy metal things that yeah i don't do those because that's not my scene but um yeah i did i'm doing a samba at the moment and uh uh something else a bit more sort of funky i like funky um yeah. and so yeah it's 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 good so it sounds like you're kind of sort of relearning the bass or at least sort of taking it further than before. But um, let's go back to when you first picked up an instrument. Can you tell us about how you first got into music? Yes. I was in the, I was in a scout gang show. I used to be a a cub mistress and they just said, well, let's have a gang show. Well, let's have a a concert. And so There was a situation, well, can anybody play an instrument? And I had a guitar. I couldn't actually play it, but I had a guitar. And two other lads had a guitar. The drummer was chosen because he was the lead drummer in the scout band. And so we got together and we did some skiffle numbers. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. And... uh, Oh, John Henry had a, yeah, something, an old Lonnie Donegan, John Henry. It must have been a very old country song. And we played those on the Scout Gang Show. The following year, uh, we did the Scout Gang Show again. And, well, it just snowballed from there. There were, there were four of us at that stage. One of the local youth leaders asked us to go and play for his youth group. And, uh, so, Little by little, the shadows, of course, were around at the time. This is kind of, what, 1961, something yeah. like that? 60, 61, something like that. Before the Beatles arrived. Oh, yes. Uh, I think it was 1960 we actually started. Skiffle. Skiffle was the music that you were playing. That's what you, how you described it. It was, but we very quickly went electric because it was sort of, you know, the, the shadows were doing their thing. And so... The lead guitarist was very much into, oh, I've, you know, I've got to have an electric guitar. And that was it. So uh, he had an electric guitar. Um, the rhythm player, he very soon followed. And I don't know whether anybody actually said this, but it was kind of, well, you're the worst guitarist, Megan. You can play bass. Uh, <laughs> or whether I just chose to do it because I couldn't do all the clever fingering that was needed on a guitar. I always felt that I, my hands were too... I, I didn't play guitar very well. So I just stuck on bass. I think to start with, I was actually playing bass on an ordinary sort of acoustic guitar. Anyway, I picked it up and I had a little red Hofner to start with. We all had little red... We all had red Hofners. They were all, all red and... Uh, very cheap and uh yeah hoffner's would have been like sort of the cheapest i guess uh a version of like a fender 
guitar. Oh, absolutely, yes. Mm. Something like that, um, but much more affordable, and they probably sounded pretty pretty mm. bad, but they did the job. Yes. Right. Well, actually, no, before that, I did have – it was, again, a Hofner, but I had an acoustic Hofner. Uh, that was my first one, and then I moved on to this little red solid one later. Mm. So, uh, so when you were playing, sorry, when you were playing bass then in the early days, how did you know how to play bass? I mean, did, were you listening to other people's bass playing, and who were you listening to? Who were your influences? Well, I suppose it was the same as everybody else's. We were listening to Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and all those people. Obviously, we listened to the Shadows. In fact. What used to happen was a Shadows tune would come out on the Friday and we'd be there playing it by the Saturday because Martin, our lead guitarist, was right into sort of getting it together immediately so that we could go out and be a la dernière mode. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those things, you know. And so we, we, uh, we did that. And, uh, well, I suppose my thing is really, I've got a, quite a quick ear and so i just picked it up and played it because um i think if you've got a, a good quick ear you just get on and do it and that unfortunately has kind of been a bit of my downfall because i haven't done a lot of practicing over the years i've just picked it up and because of my good ear i've been able to play i'm not a bad depth because i can quickly if there's a standard i can just get in and play it just like that because i've got a quick ear but to the detriment of my technique because my technique isn't very good that's interesting so like your musical talent maybe you sort of like sat on your musical talent a little bit and just sort of relied relied on the talent and yeah now you're working on the technique with uh, Scott (laughs) a bit late (laughs) okay so some an old an old acoustic Hofner bass and then the the electric Hofner bass yes um but I mean, the bass guitar that I know of yours is that Fender, that 60s Fender jazz bass. Yes, well... Are we, are we getting ahead of ourselves here or, or Yeah, there, or were a, there, were a couple of, there were a couple of basses in between. I did have a, a jazz bass probably in 62, and I made that recording of um, Tell Me When, the, the hit record. I made that on the jazz, that first jazz bass. But then... Everyone was going for the, um, well, it, it was a Gibson guitar. The The boys had Gibson 335s, and mm-hmm. I had what was called an Epiphone Rivoli, which was the same sort of style. And it what did come out of the, the Gibson uh, factory, but it was called an Epiphone. And so I did for mm, probably two years, oh, probably three years, I did play that. And I don't know why I left it so long to get back to Fender because, I mean, I've always adored a Fender jazz. I don't, I can't really explain why I didn't get back to the Fender jazz. But in 1967, I bought the lady that you know, the dear Fender jazz. And I've got others. I've got a Sandberg. I've got a, a Fretless. I've got one of those funny jack things with the end cut off. I've got oh, an yeah. acoustic I, one. Uh, I had one of those those uh, those Jack guitars. Yeah. I've got Hona. that. That's that's in France. Yes, that's in France actually. You know who else has got those? Um, Robbie 
Jake's cousin, who used to, I no, used to be hasn't. in a bat- That's the one I've got. <laughs> oh, he, you've got it because he used to collect them. So, uh, this is, wait a minute. This is your, I guess, nephew in law, right? Yes. Uh, who oh, I used to be in, I was in a few different bands with him. Yes. And he was always the bass player. And he had a black Hona Jack, headless, and a red one. And I used to have this, this kind of natural wood one. And I told him, hey, I've got one of those. And he said, oh, can I buy it from you? So I sold it to him because he started collecting them. So I don't know which which one you've ended up with. Okay, I have the red one. Okay, right. So mm-hmm. I guess I don't know where the black and the wooden ones have gone. Well, I'm, we're still in touch with Robbie. And he is now a drummer, actually. He's mainly, is he? Yes, he's mainly a drummer. And, well, that's uh, funny because now I've played more bass than drums. So I guess we switched. Well, he still does play bass, but he's in a, a Christian band playing drums. They're called uh, Dissident Prophet. And um, yeah, he's quite active. And he is, um, and he does play and sing uh, regularly in a little church in Marston Green. Oh, Sundays. that's great. Mm. Lovely. All right. So you did the gang show, the scout gang show when you were working with the scouts, you were a cub mistress, you were playing skiffle. And that's, I guess, when the band sort of got formed. And then did you did you decide, okay, we're a group now, let's continue doing this. And and what happened after that? Well, what happened then later, we used to rehearse in the scout hut. I used to be doing all these shadows things. And this annoying friend would come along and play the piano. <laughs> and uh, he would be up the corner. To, but he was quite helpful because he sub, he sometimes said, no, 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 it's not that chord. It should be such and such a thing. So he sort of joined the group because we couldn't get rid of him. And uh, <laughs> so we were just instrumentals. We didn't have a, a, a singer. We didn't have a Cliff Richard. We were just sort of an uh, instrumental group. And so we carried on doing all, all, the, all these things. I suppose we must have... We, I know initially we must have sung because we were doing all these tin hen, but it was not not decent singing really. Anyway, the uh, chap who cut the hair of two of the lads, he claimed to be a singer. I don't know whether he actually had done anything really, but we said, "Oh, come along and let's see how we get on." So he came along to the scout up one afternoon, and we did a few Cliff Richard songs, of course. And he was quite a good-looking fellow, and he was quite uh, outgoing and um, the right sort of personality to be a front man. So we said, oh, okay. And so he joined. Now, at this time, we weren't called the Applejacks. We went through a couple of names. We were called the Jaguars at some point, and we were called the Cresters at another point. But then we found there were other bands called those names. So we became – his name was Al Jackson – so we became Al Jackson, and the drummer thought of the name Applejacks to go with Al Jackson and the Applejacks because, you know, by then Jerry and the pacemakers, Billy Kramer, and the what were Dakotas. they, Dakotas, uh, a few things like that had come up. So we decided that. But then the Mercy Beats of Swinging Blue Jeans, they didn't have singers, and we thought, well, you know, it's our band. Why are we giving this this singer or this this extra title? And so we cut him out and just called ourselves the Applejacks. I guess this must have been in 1963 that we were just called the Applejacks, um, just because that name went along with Al Jackson, you know? Yeah, yeah, I see. 
And so you were kind of gigging regularly then, I guess, during sort of 62, 63? Oh, yes. We were just one of the Birmingham bands, as you were when you were with the youth club. You were around doing all those gigs. So we were doing whatever gigs were around at the time. Um, well, let's see. There was um, the Moat House Club in Bradford Street. There was the Taboo Club in Sturchley. Oh, and then we did Marigan, a lady who uh, was uh, from the Black Country. She had places. She had the Plaza place in Oldbury and the Plaza in Handsworth. And uh, she had the Ritz in King's Heath. And they were places, well, all the local bands would go and play at these um, at the, these venues. What was the scene like then during those uh, shows? The Plaza and the Ritz, mm. they were uh, sort of, um, I suppose you'd call them, ballrooms in those days people wanted to dance to the to us that was that was the main thing i mean it was it was before disco really it was what happened before disco um mm. and it was kind of between the the rock and roll bebop sort of thing and disco and people um the dancing really consisted of just sort of jiggling about apart from the twist of course when the twist take up everybody did that crazy dance um and that was during those years i think the twist came out about 64 65 something like that so people were doing that dance so a a typical show would have been you guys on stage doing your set and an audience of people all dancing and doing the twist and stuff in front of you Mm. yeah and so when did it when did it start to get a bit more serious? I mean, record contracts, that's the next step, isn't it? A recording contract. Do you remember the process of, of getting a recording contract? Yes, definitely. There was a place in Solihull, the Civic Hall. And it's a bit odd the way we went on there because uh, some friends of ours had got a gig there and their bass player wasn't able to go. So I went along and played, and because of my quick ear and because they were playing songs that I knew, Shadows, things, and that sort of thing, I didn't actually have much time to rehearse with them, but it was just a case of, well, you know, can you come and play? And I went along, and because of my quick ear, I was able to do it. But when I took a look at the Civic Hall, it was huge, and it was bigger than any place I'd ever played in. So I put my gear on the stage, my speaker and that sort of thing, and I was frightened to go on so I played <laughs> I played behind the curtain and I had to go on oh. it, was just, it was just because you know I I couldn't believe it was just so big it holds about 2,000 people and well it held about 2,000 people it's gone now and so I gave a card a card to a man at the side of the stage because he just got chatting to a, one of the porters and he gave it to the manager and the very next week a band completely folded. I think they were called the Clippers or something, whatever they were called. But they were due to play the next two Mondays because um, the manager had started this every Monday hop or whatever they used to call the dancers those days. So the next week we went and played and there were about oh, there were about 100 people there. And so we were booked to play the following week. So we knew that, you know, if we could get more people, we might be sort of in with the chance of playing there more frequently. So we told we were playing every Saturday morning at the local sports track in in Tudor Grange, and so 
we advertised it there and we told everybody, we told all our friends, there were several schools involved. And this was the point as well. This was another point. Three of the people in the band were still at school. I was nursing. The singer was a hairdresser and Jerry, the drummer, was in insurance. But we went and played and got lots of people. So we actually managed to get 400 people there the second Monday. So, of course, the manager thought, wow, this is a, you know, this band must be okay," and booked us again. And so it grew and grew and grew. And then a story got in the newspapers because somebody was trying to climb the drain pipe to get in because they'd sold out all the tickets and we got to a thousand. This is at the Civic Hall. Yes. In Solihull. Okay. So it's maybe the biggest, at the time, the biggest venue that you could have been playing in and you started to fill it. You were filling it. Yes. And even, even one person climbing up the drain pipe to try and break into the building to get in and see you. Well, that that was the story that got to the recording contract because what happens is the major newspapers, they look at the little local ones and if they think there's a good story, they put it in uh, in the big paper and it got in the Daily Mail. But also the manager of the Civic Hall, his brother-in-law used to be in the Ambrose Band, which was a, a band from the 20s, I think, something like that. Mm. And he knew a few people in town, people in the recording business. And so he brought um, Mike Smith from Decca to have a look at us in the Civic Hall. And, of course, the fact that there was a female on the bass guitar did give the band an extra sort of, there's a bit original. So I suppose that was an added sort of um, reason for us to get noticed. Yeah, there weren't many female band members in those days, maybe no. singers, but uh, no. not really many female musicians. No, there weren't, no. What was that? What was that like? I mean, was that something that people would comment on, or or, or was it just normal? Or well, people would comment on it. I mean, that was one thing. That, wow, there's a girl. Yes, it was very, very different at the time. Some girls who just followed the boys for you know good-looking boys in bands were perhaps a bit jealous that there was a girl up there. But most most times, it was quite accepted. Uh, people were surprised. I think. Did you have your fans? Because I guess sort of bands in those days, or even today, in fact, uh, they each member of the band has their own little section of the, the of the fandom. Were there Megan fans? Well, do you know, <laughs> I didn't know it much at the time, but so many times in the years after the Applejacks, people have said to me, wow, I used to have a picture of you on my bedroom wall. Wow, I thought you were fantastic. So I've heard about that, the, my fan following, more since <laughs> since the 60s than I did at the time. But, uh, I, yeah, I suppose there weren't, you know, there weren't many girls around in the, in the business then. You know, we did a tour once with um, Lulu, Millie, the Honeycombs, and Lantry played the drums and uh, there were four of us in the dressing room. And that was quite fun, having four girls together, because it was a very much a male-dominated sort of uh, society. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah, I know my mum was a fan, and she was so surprised when um, she learned that I was friends with Megan Davies from the Applejacks' son. 
It was a bit of a complicated sentence. <laughs> but when she kind of, I think she picked me up one day from your house. I was, I must have been 17 or 18. And I think maybe my dad or my mom, I can't remember, but they got kind of chatting to you and then worked out who you were. And I think my mum was a bit starstruck because I think she was a fan back in the day. That's nice. I have um, a good friend at church right now, actually, who claims that she was just absolutely knocked out. She was from Liverpool and she was absolutely knocked out when she first saw a girl on stage. And uh, she said it to me many times. Oh, I remember how how excited I was to see a girl in there. You know, she's a person who's my age and she was just thought it was wonderful to work females to be represented <laughs> yeah absolutely so what about the record contract then so you got noticed by the guy from decker and did you have to audition for them or something i mean what was the process of getting a contract no no and- he'd, he'd come and he'd seen us thought we were worthy of a record contract and we went down to record things and we were given tell me when they said i think this would suit your band play it you know we didn't write it ourselves we were given it and said this is what you do the b-side which was called baby jane we thought was actually better and more our style than tell me when because tell me when was a little bit pretty pretty whereas baby jane was a little bit more gritty but we um we went along and we were i won't say we were totally misrepresented by tell me when but it wasn't tell me when wasn't typical of our set really because our set was more rock and rolly um that's domino chuck berry orientated the coasters so we we were i mean all bands were doing that at the time we were copying the american bands you know so your your set was more r and b flavored and and tell me when was more of a straight ahead yeah, pop yeah. song yeah yeah mm. i mean how did it feel getting a record deal with it with Decca was it exciting was it frightening oh absolutely exciting very exciting we went down to record it in the snow I remember going down quite well because it was before the the M1 was there but the bottom bit hadn't been made and so it was (laughs) going from the bottom which was probably just after Luton something like that uh it was down the Edgware Road so it was a totally different way into into London and it was in the snow when we got to Decca. And I think we went down in the November and then we went and recorded. No, no, it came out. Can't remember exactly to tell the truth. It was a long time ago, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, but I guess it's a funny thing of being, especially in the business in those days, I don't know if things have changed that much, but uh, being given a song and that song, that first song defines how the public sees you as a band yeah. and there's not always that much control you can have over these things, especially when it's no. your first single. And I can go further than that in that by the time it, I think it was, uh, I think it was the fourth song. Mary Poppins had just come out and Decca wanted us to record Chim Chim Cheree. Mm-hmm. And we said, don't be so ridiculous, but they really, really wanted to do it. In fact, when you look at some of the discographies, you will see Chim Chim Cheri by the Applejacks actually in some of the lists. Oh, we never did it. We never recorded it. We said, you're joking. We're not going to do that. It doesn't define us. It's silly. We're not going to do it. 
And they were a bit annoyed about that, actually. And so they weren't very helpful after that because, you know, they, I suppose they thought, who does this little stupid band think they are? You know, I guess we just didn't want to be that sort of a band. We weren't, yeah, we were cooler than that. (laughs) Yeah, well, of course, Jim Jim Jerry's not very cool at all. No. And we know now, looking back, that yeah that would have been a that wasn't really part of the the overall musical movement of the time that 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 we now look back on okay but they didn't let you do one of the more r&b flavored sort of we did uh, i think one after that was uh we did i go to sleep which was uh, a ray davis thing ray davis from the kinks um what actually happened to sort of move us out of the limelight was the fact that in 1966, we went on a Cunard cruise. It was an odd thing. It was the news of the world ran a competition for people to go on a Christmas cruise. And it went to the Canary Islands. And there were lots of famous people on it. I remember Joe Davis, the snooker player, and Elizabeth Long, the swimmer, and Max Wall was on it as well. Lots of celebrities were on it. And we were booked to play on it. So we went and Cunard realised that a pop group was a good idea on a cruise. So we were asked to go back and we went and played. This was the Queen Mary at that time. Then we went back to play on the Queen Mary and the Queen Elizabeth. And we got stuck on there because it was nice. We enjoyed it. And um, we played until, uh, I think we we played on the QE2, the first voyage in 1969, I think it was. So we were stuck between 66 and 69 on cruise ships, mainly the Queen Elizabeth, but then later the QE2. And uh, that was, yeah, that just took us out away from the... UK scene, you know. So. I guess, yeah, that was the the, the downside. Like on the plus side, maybe you've got a good paying job on the QE2, which is pretty great. You know, it's a big cruise liner and very posh and all that stuff. It was, and of course, we were absolutely adored because British pop group. We used to go over in October, and we'd stay doing cruises for Americans from New York to the Bahamas or the West Indies or Bermuda or something like that. We'd do various cruises until April and then come back in the April. So we did that every year. We would have Christmas Day in Nassau and in Bahamas and things like that. So, wow. yeah. But one of the great things about that, Luke, was we would get in on a Monday night and it was two, it, we'd go be there two weeks at a time, every two weeks. In the summer, we'd just do crossings. So on Monday nights, every other Monday night, we'd be in New York. And we'd go down to the village and we quite often would go to the village vanguard where a magnificent jazz band was on. It was Thad Jones, Mel Lewis band, and they were wonderful. And we would be there and in the the front line would be all musicians from the ship. (laughs) We'd be sitting there eager to listen. And, you know, I was 75 the year before last And I thought, and my birthday was on a Monday. And I thought, Monday, what can I do on a Monday on this very special day? 
I thought, I know what I can do. And I went to the village vanguard. I booked a holiday in New York, went to the village vanguard, and obviously none of the musicians were the same. (laughs) (laughs) But I spent a most magnificent night at the village vanguard and there's still a very, very good band there. So it's been there on a Monday night of an excellent band, of wonderful musicians. And it was just such a thrill. But it was just about the whole deal was one of the biggest things was going and seeing these magnificent jazz musicians. I mean, one night we were there and Sarah Vaughan got up to have a jam. You know, it was just wow, amazing. So this is sort of like the late 60s, yes. I guess. Yeah. What an incredible time to be able to just drop in to Greenwich Village yeah. and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before you got on the cruise ships, which I guess sort of took you away in a sense, they, they gave you work and helped you travel, but took you away from the scene. Before you got on the cruise ships, we've talked about the record contract with Decca, but it's probably worth saying that your first single, Tell Me When, that was given to you by the record contract, did well. It got to like number five in the Melody Maker chart. Yes, seven it, in another chart. Mm-hmm. It did well. I, I don't ten. think it got to number one in any chart. It definitely got to number two in the Decca charts. But in those days, there was a Melody Maker chart and an NME chart and a BBC chart and and Luxembourg Radio Luxembourg had its own chart, and mm. so it was kind of different in those days. But yes, it did very well. Cool. Great. What was that like? I mean, do you, do you remember was, hearing it on the radio for the first time? Oh, yes. It was amazing. You know, hearing it on the radio for the first time was just so exciting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, did, you get a, did you get a touch or taste of, of fame? I mean, obviously, Beatlemania was something completely unbelievable. But a lot of other bands, you know, that were lumped into the British invasion sort of category of British bands that kind of got successful in the wake of the Beatles what level of, well, celebrity or fame did you experience? In those days, I think there were, I think there was only one TV channel. Maybe maybe the ITV channel had started. But, of course, the, practically everybody watched Top of the Pops. So if you were on Top of the Pops, everybody knew your face, had seen you. And so... I'd go into shops and people would, would be, oh, you know, that's making that. It would be one of those things. People would, although I was just in what now seems just another band, I would be recognised because that's the way it was in those days. I recall going up to Scotland and we had a little entourage following us wherever we went, sort of, well, that's the Applejacks, you know, being on television and a little group of children and teenagers would follow us around wherever we went and wait outside the hotel for us and that sort of thing because <laughs> it, because that's the way it was in those days and yes when we did dance halls and things like that the girls would scream and the boys might get pulled off the stage and that sort of thing and the Beatlemania thing was yes it was the sort of thing all the other bands experienced now it's not very cool of me to do this but um maybe because it's not cool to like drop names and things but i i feel compelled to ask you about some of the people that you must have met and i know that your second single was a lennon and mccartney song they gave it to you so Mm -hmm. did you actually meet did you actually meet the beatles oh yeah 
<laughs> tell me, I want, I must know everything. I need to know all, all about what happened. Well, can you tell? Um, what can you tell us? In those days, you you got to meet the other bands at television studios and things like that, uh, uh, or you know, you went to the Adlib Club or the uh, one of the London nightclubs and mixed there. So. Yes, um, we played in Folkestone with the Rolling Stones. I don't think we had any other... Uh, I think that was the only time we met them. But, uh, yeah, the Beatles we met at Rediffusion Studios in Wembley. We weren't doing the same programme. We were doing another programme. I can't remember what we were doing. But we met them, and uh, it was Paul who said, uh, well, yes, do you want... You know, have you got a follow-up? Do you want a song? And um, we we sat with them in the canteen and 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 talked to them. And we went to their dressing room and um, they talked about you know whether they got a song. And uh, the way we got the song was a bit. <laughs> it was one of the songs that they had actually done when they went for their Decca. I'm sure you heard about their Decca interview when. Yes. Yeah, the, Mike Smith was tos, told to choose. He could either have the Tremolos or the Beatles. And he was a London guy and the Tremolos were Cockney kids. He wanted to have both bands and he was told he had to make a selection. And he chose the London guys and, of course, the Beatles. Yeah, so he was became famous for turning down the Beatles, poor Mike. <laughs> he was a lovely guy. Yeah, I guess it was just one slight lapse of judgment. But that Decker audition that they did is is not particularly great. Uh, I mean, I've I've heard people talking about it. I've heard it, and they weren't really at their best. I think you know they were nervous, and for, for one reason or another, it just they didn't really show themselves as being a good band that they they were. And they they did much better at EMI. But I mean, when you met them what were they like i mean did you get a sense of their personalities i mean what kind of interaction did you have oh yes i mean yes definitely i mean i was a little bit in awe of john because he just he was always so cool wasn't he and he'd written that book in his own right and i just thought uh, i could feel that uh, he just felt so intelligent that i hardly dare speak to him (laughs) <laughs> uh, Paul was very pleasant, very outgoing, very um, welcoming, the, the PR person. Um, Ringo was quite chatty. We sat at his table in the canteen. And I was a bit, uh, I fancied George Harrison, so I was always a little bit awkward about speaking with him. Uh, but but <laughs> Paul was very uh, accommodating. Yeah, very. What did you like about George? I don't know. You know, when you were a girl, you had to sort of choose one of the Beatles. You had to select him. And I thought, I, I, his looks, I suppose, probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. What were they like to chat with? I mean, were they being funny and stuff, or were they a bit exhausted by all the the attention? No, they were quite bouncy, but they were, yeah, they were being bombarded by folk. I mean. Even I got their autographs because, you know, they were just so such special people. So they were quickly, they were busy scribbling autographs most of the time, to tell the truth. They signed my book and I've also got a, a separate paper with their autographs. On, um, but they were still full of it and full of enthusiasm for music and what they were doing. Mm. Great. 
So you talked about going to America with the cruise ship and stuff, uh, but the Applejacks never actually did any tours in America. No tours, no. We did a few gigs in in New York, just in little clubs, in an electric circus. I think. So what actually happened then? So after the first the first single kind of did well, top ten. Second single, Lennon and McCartney, surprisingly did less well than the first one, even though it was a it was it had been given the the gold stamp of uh, Beatles approval. Um, it it didn't reach the same position as the previous single. No, uh, that must have been a bit of a disappointment, I suppose. I don't. I can't remember. We were just so busy enjoying being on the road with the band. I don't know whether it ma- mattered at the time that that it didn't get as high. I don't know whether we were following that so much. It was just we were having a great time being on the road. Yeah, yeah. just playing music, doing what we wanted to do. That's great. That's the way it should be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, what then happens? Um, because uh, you know, if you if you go on Spotify, if you if you search the for the band's music, it seems that there's most of this. Well, all the stuff, as far as I can tell, comes from that period of sixty four, sixty five. Yes. Well, of course, when we got on the cruise ships, we um, we got away from it, and we did actually change. We had a new singer by sixty uh, seven, I think it was, because Al left. He was going to go solo, but it didn't work out for him, and so he decided not to. But we got a new singer, John, and um, he was with us most of the time. And then we just we did release one thing after that with CBS. It was um, "You've Been Cheating," an old um, Curtis Mayfield uh, wrote it, and uh, we were getting a bit more into a um, bit more solely funky type stuff by then. We did go through a little bit of a Beach Boys thing, but then. We really, mainly because of the singer, he liked all that Curtis Mayfield stuff. So we got into that that sort of um, solely stuff. Yeah, and because we were on the ships, we didn't do any recording. We just stayed on the ships. Uh, and it was quite time-consuming because you wouldn't have long between... We had, we had two weeks off in the summer. And then whilst another band would go and do the there and back voyages... So we were literally totally tied to working on the ship because, as I said, we'd go out in October, we wouldn't come back till April. And then from April to October, we were just doing crossings, Southampton, New York, Southampton, New York. And so we didn't really have time to do any recording because we were just too too busy being seamen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got to ask you for another little story possibly and that is i was talking to you about this before that when i came round to your house first when um i was friends with jake and he invited me over and uh i was in jake's room and your bass guitar was there and i picked it up and started playing it and jake casually told me oh yeah jimmy hendrix played that bass and it's true hendrix did play the bass how did how did jimmy hendrix end up playing your fender jazz bass then the, which I later played. Now I've, I have the honour of having played the same guitar as Jimi Hendrix. But um, how, how did Hendrix pick up that guitar? Well, uh, it was in my my mum's house in Castle Lane in Solihull. And well, the thing was, my brother-in-law, John, he was the roadie with Jimi Hendrix, and so I mean, he didn't he didn't actually play it on stage. He just 
played it because it was there at, at, yeah. at the house, you know. Um, he came to your house. He came to my mum's house. He came to your mum's house. Mm-hmm. But wow. uh, he did once play at the Cedar Club in Birmingham. And because he's left-handed, you see, he couldn't really pick up a lead guitar and just play it just like that. So when he did come to the Cedar Club, he played a bass, but played it kind of upside down because obviously, you know, he's a great musician and he could play it. But, I mean, he couldn't really play my bass because he's left-handed. But but on this occasion at the Cedar Club, he got up and he played the bass this way, you know. It must have been difficult for him being left-handed, you know, because he, he couldn't just get up and play play bass left-handed, right-handed when he's left-handed, you know? Normally, he would have had the neck in his right hand and, and yeah. plucking the fingers with, yeah. with his left hand, but yeah. he switched it over into so he was holding the neck in his left hand, and not the normal hand. Yeah, and yeah. yeah mm-hmm. it's amazing, yeah. Amazing that he could no, do that. actually, he didn't. No, he didn't. No? He played it upside Maybe down. he played it upside down. He played down. it upside down, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so he's, he's got the bass string at the bottom yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and and playing it upside down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. still amazing. I mean, whatever way yeah, yeah. you do it, it's yeah. it's still mm. pretty amazing. Wow, that's that's so great. I mean, and how how did you find Hendrix? I mean, was he? People said that he's he's shy, despite the fact on stage he was a lot more outgoing. But yes, he he, he is. Uh, uh, but he was very cool, and. Uh, he, um, yeah, j- just very good. But yes, he, he was he was shy. Um, I mean, because he was shy, he didn't he didn't say an awful lot. I mean, I, d- I didn't have a long conversation with him really because he was because he was yeah yeah quite, yeah, quite a shy yeah. person. Um, he'd just talk about everyday things. Um, I did meet him once in uh, in New York. We were in there and uh, we went up to his room in his hotel and he, he was in a hotel near Times Square and we went up there and just chatted generally you know no no um, outstanding remarks that I can remember you know oh the weather's nice today isn't it Jimmy yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, um. I could keep asking you more and more questions but I mean what what happened then in so now or well, now you work in healthcare and stuff and and so when did you stop doing music and start and, and start becoming a nurse and working in the health service and so on uh, well if I can ask. after um i mean after the applejack sort of folded in about um the last phase was about 71 i suppose i was in various bands in and around birmingham i did lots of different types of bands i was with one band called mongrel in birmingham for quite a long time and we got quite excited about that band and thought we were going to do something. We've got a, an album, uh, an Polydor album. But mm. what happened was Roy Wood pinched half the band to go to uh, to join Wizard. And so that band, Mongrel, folded, and I was in the sort of second phase of, of Mongrel. But then there were other bands. Oh, I played with many, many different bands. I did actually for one summer season play with the ivy benson band an all girls band that was exciting that was when oh, wow. jacob jacob was about two at the time and luke had just been born so that was yeah. that was an experience and that i had to try and 
had to read music, which uh, is not my forte. So that was difficult for me. And then I just stayed doing different little things with various bands because the children, it was it was an easy job to do because I could just get a babysitter for the children and I would be away when the children were asleep. So I'd be working during the evenings, which was good. And I went back in, just after Oscar was born in 89, I went back to proper job. <laughs> uh, and uh, I worked in and around Birmingham, various hospitals. And I was at the QE, no, I was at the Queen Elizabeth Psychiatric at the time, doing EEGs, you know. And uh, Robert wanted to, my husband wanted to move to London because he thought there'd be more opportunity to play music. And he'd been down there working in London in the 70s. And so we moved down to London and I moved to, I got a job at Great Ormond Street. Uh, not everybody who does uh, neurophysiology likes to work with children. So you've got to have a little bit of extra patience to work with, with children and, mm. do, and deal with their parents. And so I moved down to Great Ormond Street. And so we've been down in London ever since. And when I retired, I wasn't at the Great Ormond Street then. I did move to uh, Queen Square uh, to work with adults. But then when I tried to retire, my consultant from uh, Great Ormond Street said, well, will you come and work down here? I said, how can I work down there in Surrey when I live in North London? So we made this arrangement for me to go down three and a half days a week. And I've been doing that ever since. I went to help out for a couple of weeks and uh, I'm still there. <laughs> 12 years later, still there. Yeah. So I guess during the, the 70s and 80s, I guess maybe the 80s, um, you, on the, as well as being a musician on the side, you were training to become a clinical physiologist as well. well. I, I, it was no? something that I'd already done. It was the only thing I knew, really, because that's what I'd, when I, although I went initially to be a nurse, I was put in the EEG department as a, by a way of, discovering all the different things that were going on in the hospital. And I got stuck there. I got fascinated by looking at brain activity. And a lady was just about to leave to have a baby. So I was in the right place at the right time. This is the 70s, isn't no, it? This is the 60s. Because I was in EEG before I went professional with the band. Right, so I, I see. already got... No, I was already not just a little nurse. I was already, uh, they called me an EEG recordist at the time, rather than a clinical physiologist. Was this university that you, did you go through university to to? to I was just in that? the right place at the right time. I just yeah. fell into it. I went to train as a nurse, but after going into that particular department and realising my... Um, your preference for... You have to be able to understand the activity and it was something that not everybody can do. You've got to have an artistic, perhaps, tendency to be able to identify the brain activity and and its changes. So you just had had a sense of uh, how to understand and how to observe and look at brain activity. I guess yeah. it was just a, um, a skill that you that you well, had yes. for to start with. Reason. You look at the wavy lines and you think, "Wow, that's fascinating!" And you get to know it a bit more, and you get 
And because I was a nurse just observing, I thought, wow, that's fascinating. And and this lady just had left to have a baby just whilst I was there. And so although I hadn't got the qualification, in those days, there wasn't so much university going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, they realized my potential, I suppose, and sort of said, well, yes, come and work with us. So finally, I just want to ask you about your bass guitar again, which is next to you yeah. as we speak, because you've been yeah. practicing. Yeah. Um, and it's wonderful to see it because it's one of these instruments, one of these guitars that's got lots of patches on it where the paint has come off and the wood is being is being exposed underneath, which shows where you put your thumb exactly. when you play. You <laughs> stick your thumb on the body of the guitar. Oh, and that's probably I've got to change that as well. He says, my thumb, it's not anchored. That was one of um, Scott's points about me. My thumb is not anchored. And so because it wasn't anchored and it was sort of floating about here, I now have got to rest it on the um, on, pickup pick and play like that. Yeah, that's one of the great things about a Fender Jazz is that it has these two pickups in two positions and it's really convenient for just resting your thumb. Yeah. You can just stick your thumb on the end of the of either pickup and get a different sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so why the jazz bass then? Why? I mean, you said that you'd had different basses um, during your career and stuff, but what is it about the Fender Jazz that's so great? Well, this is the thing. If you were to go into Scott's bass lessons, you would realise that there are the jazzers and the P basses, and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> I've got a P bass over there. Oh, have you? Um, well, Scott. Yeah, oh, hold on. I, I need Scott, to show you. Hold on. Scott is crazy about P basses. You'll oh, see yeah. it's new. Oh, very nice. Oops. You'll see it's new. I got it during lockdown. Uh, it's a Mexican made uh, P bass. Oh, lovely. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got the very same, shiny. Uh, <laughs> it's extremely shiny and no 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 wear and tear on it at all almost it's hardly it's never been out of the apartment but uh i've got the rubber band because sometimes i try and stick the rubber band over the strings at the top to try and you know yeah. dead and muffle them a bit there's you can also put the little uh, sponge underneath the strings here at the bridge but yeah p bass so the same tortoise shell plus sunburst that you've got yeah yeah um, so yes, sorry, I interrupted you, but you were, you were talking about how in Scott's bass lessons, you you understand that there are the jazz bass people and the Fender precision bass people. Absolutely. You've gone, you, but you always went for the jazz bass. Initially, yeah. it was because of neck, because at the end of the neck here, it's narrower this way in depth, and yeah. so I found it easier to play. But since then, I've got used to the tone. And the sound, and I prefer the tones that you can get with um, with, with the jazz than, than the precision. But, I mean, Marcus Miller is totally, totally jazz. Um, Scott is totally, totally P-bass. Well, people tend to choose either the P-bass people or the jazz-bass people. Jacko is a jazz person, you know. And so, yeah. in fact, I was looking at a thing of Jacko, and he's got, He's got one of these. He's got that. So he must have done a bit of that sometimes. You mean he's got a patch of exposed yeah. uh, wood where he's yeah. placed his thumb? Yeah. It's not until fairly recently that I've realised that that's what it is. It's me putting my thumb there instead of resting it on the thing. And here, I keep my 
I keep my plate there. So look, <laughs> Mark has come around there. Like, so there's what <laughs> listeners, what, what Megan is describing here is that there's a place un, where the, where the uh, scratch plate meets the body of the guitar just above the neck. And uh, that's where she slides her plectrum to keep it there. Plectrum is the little plastic thing that you use to strike the string sometimes. And yeah, there's even a, a patch where the paint has come away just from putting the plectrum in and removing it so many times over the years. It's lovely the way guitars pick up these marks and these, these patches and stuff. And I used to smoke. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, you see used to go. There's, so Megan, listeners, is now pointing to a spot at the end, at the top end of the guitar, where the neck uh, meets the head of the guitar, and there's a, a, a burnt spot there <laughs> where I guess cigarettes have been stuck in that spot just under the bass string while playing. You can just put your cigarette there. Eric Clapton used to do that too, didn't he? Famously, oh, um, but okay. So you've got your patch. You've got your patch of um, uh, uh, of exposed wood there, where you put your thumb. And Scott Scott has told you that this is not good. But if it's good enough for Jaco Pastorius, that's what I then... said. I said that to, to Scott actually. Yeah, it's good enough. Good enough for him. Yeah, because you learn all these things from Scott, and he's got all this, and and obviously he's gone through it all, and there are good techniques and bad techniques. But you do see some very very famous people where the thumb does creep over the, the neck and it does sometimes you know uh, marcus miller has his thumb over the neck very frequently and you're well, not yeah. supposed to put the thumb over the neck you're supposed to just you know but that my little finger has been redundant for quite a few years so i'm and i'm strengthening that because i didn't use my little finger i just used the others yeah some of those positions that you have to get your hand into but yeah, if you, I mean, Scott's very good at that, uh, spreading mm. his finger across the, his hand across the fretboard. But yeah, it takes some work to get your fingers to actually have the strength to stretch all the way across and, and hit all the frets in the right way. Um, well, uh, Megan, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for talking to me about all of these things that happened many years ago. It's been really interesting, and I'm also really happy that you're still playing the bass, especially taking lessons with Scott, and we're giving him even more free publicity at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but, I still, um, I mean, I do still play. I play, I play at church when church is allowed to be open, and I play with a choir, the Life and Mission Choir. Unfortunately, it was their 20th anniversary last year, and. Um, at Easter, we were doing gr many great sort of uh, concerts. We were doing concert, uh, Christian concerts. We were doing uh, a thing called Time for Jesus, which was written by our, our leader, Paul. And, of course, it was everything was cancelled. Uh, at the moment, we're trying to do it online in time for Easter. But it's, um, yeah, uh, a lot of things have been. And, of course, I haven't been playing live, uh, well, you know, in front of people. So, Scott's bass lessons has saved me. Didn't the Applejacks reunite um, a few years ago? Um, we reunited in 86 for the um, Beth Bevan from ELO put a concert together for the Children's Hospital in Birmingham at the NEC. It was called Heartbeat 86. So we got together for that. And then in, I think it was about 2016, 17, something like that, we got together because the church that I went to where we frequently played, St. Mary's in Solihull, 
was in need of funds. And so we got together for that and had a concert actually in the church hall uh, to raise money for them. And so they were exciting times. But more recently, there's a chap who's writing a book about the Applejacks. His name's Andrew. And he got us all together for, actually, we did meet when Al was 70 and we all went down to Pembroke where he lives. So that was an occasion. But of course, Martin, the guitarist, has never been allowed to, able to come to any of these things because he lives in California. So Andrew, this author who's doing the book, he got us all on Zoom which meant that we were able to see Martin as well, which was fantastic after all these years. And Martin couldn't get his breath. So we were on Zoom, all six of us, the six of us, and it was really super. And we really enjoyed it. And we decided that we were going to do it annually. We'll, we'll do it again in December next year because they were our university years, if you like. Um, yeah. And they're special times. And it was odd, really, because I suppose Don and Martin were friends, but the rest of us, we weren't really friends. We were just sort of thrown together because of music. And interestingly, none of us actually joined that band because we were originally members of another band and we went to join. We were just mates who fell together thanks to the Boy Scouts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we don't you know, we send Christmas cards to each other, but we're not in close contact. But we've just got that bond because we were together for all those years. And when I say together, you know, we were sitting in the back in the back of the van. That's the way it was those days. You had your gear in the back and you, and sat and you spent an, an awful lot of time, 24-7 it was. The first year that we spent with the Applejacks, we had four days off in the whole year. It was always a photo shoot or uh, a recording session or an interview or a gig. There was always something because the agency, uh, Harold Davison Agency, wanted to make money out of us. So, yeah. 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 There was no a, a sort of acrimonious split then uh, in with the band. The, the band didn't split up in acrimony like many other bands do, you know, when, they, when they've kind of reached their shelf life the members of the bands will go their separate ways and sometimes there's arguments and disagreements and falling out and stuff just think of a lot of other bands you know the Beatles are an example so that didn't happen then really with you well when the singer left he decided that he thought he'd do better on his own so he just left and we weren't happy that he was leaving but we just auditioned for somebody else and got somebody else in and and carried on and and you see we were in the middle of, in the we were doing these these cruises so we needed somebody but it wasn't actually acrimonious he just thought he'd do better as a, an individual and so he left that's quite nice quite refreshing that it's just like oh i'm gonna leave now okay bye and everyone's quite happy was, you know it was just like that he got out the van one night and said bye then see you around yeah okay <laughs> Oh, that's that's nice. That's a refreshing version of the story instead of, you know, the usual kinds of fighting that we hear about in bands and stuff. Thank you again, Megan. And when we've managed to deal with COVID in a more organised manner, let's look forward to getting back on stage. You know, I hope you can 
be doing more shows and concerts and that you get all that practice with Scott's bass lessons is going to pay off. I look forward to being in Paris again. We love Paris. And we've seen you a couple of times there. We look forward to uh, the time when we can come to another one of your uh, presentations. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. Okay. Well, say hi to the family from me. Okay. And all the best. Thank you again. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, so that was Megan Davies from the Applejacks and from just normal life as well. <laughs> um, thanks again to Megan for taking the time to talk to us about all of that. This music you can hear in the background. That's another one of their songs. This one's called Baby Jane. Right, I'm going to stop playing that now can't play too much of that but that was baby jane i thought i'd play a little bit of baby jane at the end there i think that megan mentioned the song um in that conversation saying that uh, she thought that was a better representation of what their music was really like the sort of stuff that they played in their live shows and you could hear uh, megan's uh, bass guitar playing that sort of dance more stuff you can dance to more kind of r&b flavored rather than just the kind of more conventional pop of the other song uh, tell me when so baby jane was the b-side to um to tell me when but anyway there you go just yeah thanks again to megan for that and it was very nice of her to give up her time and talk to us about things that happened in her life many years ago. And uh, we really appreciate it. Now, you might be wondering why I didn't get Megan to actually play some bass for us, which would have been really nice, of course. But, um, well, I didn't really want to put her on the spot. And plus, for us to hear it, to actually hear the bass properly, she'd need to plug it into something like an amplifier and then connecting an electric guitar to a computer and playing the sound during a call is a bit tricky too. So it wasn't really possible at that particular moment. But you can hear songs by the Applejacks on Spotify and on YouTube. I'll be sharing some bits and pieces on the page for this episode, including a video filmed in 1964, I think, of Megan performing with the Applejacks, which is a great little sample of the time. And you can see her playing, I think, her... Hofner semi-acoustic bass that she mentioned. So yes, we're pretty much done here. Oh yeah, so okay. So I actually, so it took me a few times to to record the introduction to this episode because I did actually record another introduction which I ended up not using. And the introduction I recorded first time round was like nearly 45 minutes long, which is obviously far too long. I couldn't publish that. Because you'd be thinking, oh, Luke, get on with it. Please, we just want to hear Megan, as advertised in the title of the episode. So I couldn't publish that 45-minute introduction. But I feel reluctant to just delete it. So what I'm going to do with that introduction, uh, the unused one, is I'll put it uh, as bonus audio for this episode in the Luke's English Podcast app. So if you are listening using the Luke's English Podcast app, 
just um, have a look at the app there and you'll see next to the play button, there should be a little gift icon. So if you touch the gift icon, that will reveal the bonus audio. And it's about 45 minutes of me rambling on about the Apple Jacks, about um, how I know Megan, about memories of going to college and playing music with her son, Jake, and other things and playing little bits of like the shadows and some some more. Um, yeah, so it's about 45 minutes of that. So if you want to, you could listen to that. And it saves me from having to just delete it forever. Um, okay, so so there you go then. All right, I'm curious to know what you think, everyone, as ever. So please do leave your comments in the comments section with any kinds of thoughts or questions that you have. And as I've said already, you know, check out the Applejack's music for a little flavour of of uh, the early to mid 60s in the UK. Um, there you go. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, especially those of you who are still listening all the way to the end. You're the best. You are the best people. I mean, just generally the best people in the world. You know, all those other losers who decided to stop listening to this. Oh, no. that I mean, what's the point, really? I don't know. But, uh, but oh, no, not you. You're still listening. Good for you. Well done. Give yourself a pat on the back. Um, and I expect your English will, you know, will benefit all the more for your commitment and your interest as well. And there's nothing more for me to add here, except that I will speak to you soon in another episode of the podcast. But for now, it's just time for me to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.